Well, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'd love to be able to meet you after the service today. So please come up and say hello. Before we dive into our sermon this morning, our text this morning, I wanted to mention a couple of things. Uh, one is a slight correction from a slide, just so there's no confusion. Emily mentioned that the college lunch is today, which is correct. The slide originally said it was next weekend. So just if you were confused, it is this afternoon. So college students, please go eat free food. Bonnie's making the food, so I think I'm going to stop by myself. <clears throat> if you've never eaten any of her food, you're missing out. A uh, couple other things just want to mention really quick. Um, if you see people over the next couple of weeks taking photos, uh, don't be alarmed. Um, we are updating our website, and so we're going to be using some new photos and video on the, the upcoming website. So if you see people snapping pictures, um, that is why they are doing that. So just want to give you a heads up about that. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is next Sunday, uh, after we gather together, we are going to have uh, our next member meeting. And so if you are a member here at Redeeming Grace Church, just want to encourage you to go ahead and make plans for that meeting. And these are important times, crucial in the life of our church, because it's at these meetings that we really have an opportunity as leaders to share different things that are going on in the life of our church, uh, have opportunity for you to ask questions. This particular member meeting, we're going to be giving some ministry updates that are really exciting and important for us as a church, as well as voting in some new members and saying goodbye to some members who have moved on to other churches in the area or out of the area. So please make plans to attend. This isn't one of those optional things. As members, we really want to be all in. That's what it means to be a member of the church. We're rolling up our sleeves saying, I'm all in. And this is a critical time for us to be together as brothers and sisters. So make plans to come out to that uh, after our gathering next Sunday. Now we're going to jump into our text today in 1 John chapter 3. And Kylie is going to be reading our sermon text this morning. So 1 John 3, 11 verses, uh, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. God, we have declared this morning that you are good. And God, that is true. And we acknowledge at the same time that we need help when we struggle to believe that that's true. And God, you're faithful. We've declared that this morning. And God, we also struggle to believe that at times. And so I pray now as we open up your word that you would just minister to our hearts, draw us closer to you. Thank you for the gift of grace that we have in Christ. Thank you for the gift it is to gather together to be reminded of who you are and what it means to have a relationship with you. And that's not just for us to have a relationship with you, but it impacts the way that we live. And so God, I pray that as we open up your word to this text, as we seek to understand it, that you would use it in a way to challenge us and change us and convict us so that as we walk out of these doors today, we would live lives that are pleasing to you, that are glorifying to you, and we genuinely would do what you call us to do. So help us to lean in and listen this morning. God, do a good work in us for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
As many of you know, my family loves baseball. My two older boys both play baseball, and we also like to watch it, whether in person or on TV. Now, I know not everyone is into the game. We're not all there yet. We'll get there, though, eventually. (laughs) Some of you find it boring. Some people even say that baseball really doesn't require that much skill to play. I mean, what's the big deal? You're hitting a ball with a wooden stick. That can't be that hard, right? Well, check this out. The pitcher's mound in professional baseball to the plate to... Uh, the pitcher's mound to the plate is 60 and a half feet away. So that's a little bit wider than the stage area here. At the highest levels, once the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, typically traveling 85 to 95 miles per hour, it takes 400 to 500 milliseconds to reach the batter. The batter has much less time to decide whether or not he is going to swing or not. It takes about 100 milliseconds. There's my boy. 100 milliseconds to assess the location and speed of the pitch, and another 150 milliseconds for the batter to start to swing and get the bat in the right place. That leaves you only 150 to 250 milliseconds, a quarter of a second to decide whether or not you're going to swing or not, and to put your bat in the right place. No wonder popular science said that hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in sports. So in this case, The old adage is true, hitting a baseball is easier said than done. As we come to our text today, we see that John gives us a command. He calls us to love one another. It's something he's alluded to in chapter 2, but in this text, he actually puts some more meat on the bones to help us understand what he really means by that and why it matters for our lives. And what we'll see in and through this is, yes, we might agree that we should love one another, We might even say that we love one another. But when it comes down to the practical application in real life, it too is easier said than done. You and I live in a challenging time. Our world is becoming more and more polarized. And unfortunately, that can creep into the life of a church. And instead of being known for how we love one another, we can become known for our disagreements with one another. So this text is timely for us. It's one of the most challenging and practical passages in this whole letter that John's writing. And it's a gift for us from God to sit in it in this time. And I hope that God will use it to change our thinking and our living as we seek to do life together. So in this cultural moment, we need to hear it really and truly. And so I want to invite you this morning to be attentive to the Spirit. I want to invite you this morning to set aside any presuppositions you have, any personal opinions you might have, and listen to the voice of your risen King. My hope today is that God will use this by His Spirit to convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, and lead us all to walk out in repentance and faith this life along the way that we have with one another. Brothers and sisters, I really believe that if we take up this call, this command from John given to us by Jesus to genuinely love one another, not just say that we do, but actually love one another, it can be transformative for our family here, for our community here, for the wider community of Fairfax and for the world around us. So with that, let's dive into 1 John 3 this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. Throughout this letter... John has been helping his audience and us understand what it means to be a true follower of Jesus versus a false follower of Jesus. 
Then we might say that we follow Jesus with our mouths, but he's helping us understand what it really is required, what's necessary for you to know if someone actually is following Christ or not. And to do that, he gives us this series of tests throughout this letter. He gives us a moral test, how we live. He gives us a doctrinal test, what we believe. And he gives us a social test, how we love. Our text today is a social test, how we love. And he begins in verse 11 with this command, we should love one another. Now Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, but the call to love one another is specific to how Christians treat one another, how brothers in Christ, sisters in Christ, love and care for each other. And this command isn't new, it was a part of the message they heard from the beginning. It's a part of the gospel of grace that they've received and believed. Jesus taught his disciples, who in turn taught others to love one another as an implication of their new life in Christ, as an overflow of their new life in him. The problem is, is that we, along with John's original audience, could see this and think, yep, got it, love one another. I know, we should do that. But as the early 90s song by Hathaway so poignantly asked, what is love? (laughs) Love is always a topic of our culture. If you're a Virginia resident, you probably on your license plate have our state slogan. Virginia is for lovers. Our culture tries to define love in all sorts of ways. Most often it's wrapped up in our emotions or our feelings towards someone or something. But here, John's not trying to be poetic and he's certainly not trying to be sentimental. No, he wants to make sure that we understand what it really means, what it really looks like. So John is defining love for us and he's showing us that true love manifests itself in real action. To do that, he begins by showing us how not to love in verses 12 through 15. Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. John gives us this command in the negative. If you wanna love one another, don't be like Cain. John's referencing the first known murder after Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Cain and Abel were Adam and Eve's sons. They both brought sacrifices before God. God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's sacrifice. And so in Reaction to that, Cain actually kills his brother. Why does he do this? Why does he kill his brother? Well, John tells us it's because he's of the evil one. He's influenced by in the direction of and the leading of the enemy of God, of Satan. His deeds were evil. They were tainted with his own sin and his own unrighteousness. And he looked at his brother and saw that his brother was seeking to honor Christ. He was seeking to honor God, to be righteous. But just in case we think this was a snap judgment, a a crime of passion, this isn't how it worked out for Cain. There was a building process that was going on. It was something that was a progression, a building up, not all happening at once. See, Cain was jealous of his brother. And his jealousy led to him to have anger against his brother. And his anger led for him to hate his brother. And ultimately, that hate led to murder. Now, before we dig in a bit more to what John means, he makes a little bit of an aside in verse 13. In verse 13, John writes, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. 
John, in talking about the world, and we said a few weeks ago, the world, when he's speaking of it in this way, is humanity in rebellion against God. It's the values and the systems and the structures that run counter to God and his good ways that are opposed to the real and risen Jesus. Now, John probably also has in mind here those who once were a part of this local church but have since left to go chase after the things of the world. Because of that, they're now treating these followers of Jesus like Cain, with malice, with hate. Why? Well, they don't evidence love towards these believers, but hate towards them, and maybe you've experienced this as well, precisely because they are doing what God says and what God calls good. So both Cain and the world are examples of how not to love. Now, you may be thinking, If the standard of how not to love is not to murder someone, then I'm good to go. (laughs) But you might be missing the point of what John's getting at here. Now, of course, I hope that none of us ever commit murder, but this isn't just about the physical act of taking a life. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is putting your anger, your feelings towards your brothers and sisters in the same plane as actually killing them. See what Jesus is saying, what John is trying to help us understand is this is a matter of the heart before it's ever about your outward actions. Things like anger, hate, being mean-spirited, divisive, all come from within It's a matter of your heart, not external factors. And it reveals that you believe that the most important person in your life is you, not God and not others. John is bringing this up because he wants us to assess where our hearts really are as they relate to one another. Not just what we say, but how we actually live. Have our hearts been transformed? Are they being transformed? So he says in verses 14 and 15, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is about ongoing action towards one another. And whether it be love or hate, it's an external indicator of an internal reality. If you love your brothers and sisters, it gives evidence that you belong to God. Why? Because you can't love them like this apart from a new heart. It no longer lives for self. But to say that you love God and then are mean to your brothers and sisters, it flashes an indicator light. Like the ones that go off in your car to tell you something's wrong with your engine. That you don't have or know the love of God at all. John's point is, is that if you hate your brother or sister, you are as much a murderer as Cain. There's no new life, no real life in you. In other words, being a selfish or mean-spirited Christian is an oxymoron. Those two things don't go together. Those can be hard words to hear, but there's hope for you. There's hope for all of us to be and do that all that God has called us to, to actually and really love one another, which is where John goes next when he shows us how to love. We see this in verses 16 through 18. What is love? Well, John tells us in the beginning of verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
You and I don't have to wonder what love is. We don't have to look to the world to take our cues on what love is actually supposed to look like. If you wanna know what real love is, we don't have to look any further than the person and work of Jesus. In Jesus and through Jesus, we have an example and personal experience of the kind of love that John is calling us to. It's joyful and willing kind of love, a love that led Jesus to lay down his life for us. But it isn't love simply because he laid down his life for us. If I go on a hike and I'm standing out on an overlook and just taking in all the scenery of what's in front of me, and you come along and you see me up there standing on this overlook high up on a mountain, you say, you know what, I really love you and I really care about you, but it's not enough just to tell you that. So to show you that I love you, I'm gonna jump off the cliff right now. I look at you and think, what are you talking about? That's crazy, why in the world would you think that that would communicate love just by jumping off the cliff for me? But if I'm on that same overlook and I slip and I fall and I'm dangling off the edge, not sure if I'm gonna survive or make it and you come along and you see me and you put yourself in harm's way and you climb down that ledge and you do everything you can to try and lift me back up to safety so that my life might be spared at the risk of your own life, well, that communicates love. Jesus does so much more than that for us though. We weren't just hanging on the edge of a cliff about to die, we're already dead in our sin. We are enemies of God, we're unwilling and unable to save ourselves, to give ourselves life. None of us deserve to be rescued. We have no standing to promote ourselves to God, no ability to be worthy of rescue and reconciliation to God, quite the opposite of God. We rebelled against him, we're enemies of him, but God loved you. And he showed that love to you by coming to you as one of us to rescue us in the person and work of Jesus. Laying down his life isn't just about the cross though. It's about the totality of Jesus' life, everything about it that led up to and includes his death. Jesus came to serve, not be served. Jesus came to consider others' needs as more important than his own. He humbled himself, taking on the form of humanity and being a servant of all. He had no place to call his own, to lay down his head. He was despised, he was rejected, he was misunderstood, he was reviled. All of his life was a laying down of his life up until the point of his death. It's love because at the cost of his life, he gives you life. So listen to me, if you are in Christ this morning, you already know what real love is because you've experienced it in and through Jesus. But I also want you to remember what that means practically for you. No matter what's going on in your life right now, if you are hurting, if you're lonely, if you're tired, if you're down, God's love remains. God's love for you isn't contingent on your behavior, it's contingent on his son, and he declared it is finished. If you are in Christ, be encouraged. You are dearly and truly loved by God. God has lavished his love on you. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago and Romans eight tells us that absolutely nothing, nothing in this world can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And I need to hear that. I need to believe that. I need to be reminded of that regularly. And my guess is that some of you do too. Brothers and sisters, may God's word, may the truth of God's love wash over you this morning and be life to a weary soul be encouragement to a faint heart, be endurance to help you keep running your race. 
But listen, if you sit here this morning and know that you haven't yet truly experienced God's redeeming grace, this message is for you too. It's a message of hope. It's a message of invitation. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to rescue you out of it. Jesus alone is the remedy. He died in the place of sinners like you and me to give us life. And so if you find yourself not having yet experienced that life, will you respond to that gift of grace? Come today and respond to the gift of grace and love of God. Now church, we can't move on to what John calls us to in this next phrase in the following verses unless we understand this, that this is love. There's no quid pro quo. This is not contractual love. Jesus only loves us as much as we love him. Now this is not contingent on anything but his love for us that he's set on us. And it's only when we start to understand that, when we start to comprehend that love through the lens of what Jesus did for us that we're able to actually walk in obedience to the command that we see in this text. Verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. How are we to love one another? Like Jesus loves us, joyfully, willingly, sacrificially. See, Jesus' love for us is not only an example, it's not only something we've experienced personally, it's also the power for us to love one another in this otherworldly kind of way, to be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters if necessary. Only genuine love created by the Spirit that exists in and flows out of a new heart will allow us and compel us to do something like that. This is not a new idea that John's coming up with, this is the ethic of our King. This kind of love is selfless giving on behalf of another. It's giving that has personal cost, but doesn't hesitate because of genuine love. But John wants to make sure that we understand, not only understand this, but also understand that this isn't theoretical. This isn't something for us to just kind of lock in our heads and say, yeah, cool, loving one another, I get that in theory. So he very quickly brings it down to real life. By this we know the low love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need yet closes his heart against him or her, how does God's love abide in him? See, you and I can say that we have this kind of love, the kind of love where we would lay down our life on behalf of another, but what happens? What happens when someone is really in need right now in front of us? See, displaying this kind of love is not off in the distant future. There is opportunity right now in our family, in our community to show it and to give it. What John is doing is connecting the love we say we have for God with the love we show to one another. So his question should be taken seriously. If we see our brother or sister in need and don't seek to relieve his or her distress, how can we say that God's love really abides in us? This kind of love is something that flows from a new heart that's rooted in Jesus. You know, sometimes we can slowly turn the flow of that faucet of love off until no love flows anymore. We can end up just like Cain. There can be a buildup that takes place that leads us to close our hearts off against a brother or a sister. And when we see them, we're not willing to serve them. We're not willing to love them. Why? Maybe they've done something to offend you. Maybe they think differently than you do. Maybe they're approaching COVID differently than you are. 
Maybe they vote different. Maybe they look different. Maybe they are different. Then our culture encourages this. Just find your little tribe, hang out with them, and everything will be okay. But that's not what we're called to as brothers and sisters in Christ. John right here is giving you a social test, how you love one another. And what he's saying is, is that the fruit of true faith is genuine love for one another. And your words are backed up by your works. So if there's no love there between brothers and sisters, there might also be no life. So let me ask you, is your life characterized by this kind of love towards your brothers and sisters? Thinking about people in your community right now, sitting around you this morning, thinking about your home. Husbands, do you love your wives this way? Wives, do you love your husbands this way? Is how you talk about people on Facebook or Twitter communicate this kind of love for brothers and sisters? Would your neighbors know how much you really genuinely love those that bear the name of Christ with you? See, the most pressing need in the world right now is not heroic martyrdom. It's heroic acts of daily, regular sacrifice and care for one another. So John gives this clear command, verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And don't just love with words. Don't just walk by people and say, hey, I love you and do nothing about it. No, John says love in deed and in truth. And when he says in truth, this isn't about speaking the truth, but love that's informed by truth. In other words, love one another like Jesus loved you. Let that be what informs how you do this. True compassion, true love requires action. We see this in Jesus. Jesus didn't tell you he loved you. He showed you that he loved you. As brothers and sisters in God's family, we should be the first to show that and give that to one another when one of us is hurting or one of us is in need because we've experienced it from him. This is real life, ground level, practical outworking of the gospel in your life and relationships. This is life together. We can't move on to be a healthy community and a healthy church and make an impact in our community and around the world if we miss this, if we don't understand this. It's absolutely essential for us to pay attention to because like hitting a baseball, it is way easier said than done. So what are we to do now? Today's culture glorifies self, whether it be self-will, self-autonomy, self-satisfaction, self-sufficiency. Me is at the center of so much that we do. And if we're honest, the lens that so many of us often look through in relation to our lives and others is asking ourselves, how does this thing affect me? We, We ration our love to one another, our willingness to engage with one another first by how it affects me. But in Christ and through Christ, self doesn't rule the day because self has been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. Not many of us will have the opportunity to literally lay down our physical life for one another, but we all have the opportunity to die to ourselves. We all have the opportunity to lay down our rights, to lay down our wants, to lay down our stuff, to lay down our desires for the sake of another. All of us have the opportunity to consider others' needs as more important than our own needs. That's what this kind of love does. It seeks another person's good, even at the cost to self. It's fine being inconvenienced 
if it means that someone else will be served and feel loved. It's willing to lay down something of value to us for the sake of enriching the life of another. To love like this, in deed and in truth, requires not only a solid rootedness in the gospel, like we've just talked about, that's informed by Christ and what he's done for us, but it also requires us to be intentional with our lives. This call, this command to love one another, it's not a passive endeavor. It's not like, well, I'll love if an opportunity maybe presents itself and is right in front of my face. No, we have to look for it. Notice what John says in verse 17. Seize his brother in need. Let's not always wait for needs to be verbally expressed. Let's go out looking for them. Let's look for opportunities to love one another. Love one another like Jesus did. Jesus didn't sit passively by. He came to us and he sought to love us. Now listen, we can all grow in this. But I also want to encourage you this morning, because as I think about our church, I see many of you having done this and continuing to do this. Whether someone needs a meal because they've just had a baby or experienced a health issue and need some food brought to them or groceries brought to them. Many of you have met financial needs of one another that can't make ends meet right now or have some burden with medical costs or something like that. You've picked each other's kids up and taken them places. You've fixed things at one another's homes. You've sought to care for and help one another along the way. You've housed people in your homes, either for free or for very little rent. I see you guys longing to do this. So continue, please, to do that. Encourage one another as you seek to love. See, seeing a need requires that we're in close proximity to one another, that we're actually involved in one another's lives. Real relationships allow for the sharing of real needs. So are you building those kinds of relationships? Are you seeking to know and love your brothers and sisters? Are you seeking to be known and be loved by your brothers and sisters? Life is hard, but sometimes I think one of the hardest things is actually being able to express a need, to share a weakness, to ask for help. Why? Because the pride in our hearts and the mantra of our culture is dangerously individualistic. We can believe things like strong people don't ask for help. This is my personal matter, best to keep it private. I don't wanna burden anybody with my problems. Maybe you've believed these things. Maybe you're believing them now. I know I have, and it's kept me from asking for help along the way. But listen to me, brother or sister, you weren't created to go it alone. Your personal matters and burdens are ours to carry together. It's why we, again, talk about membership. It's why it matters. We're saying, I am here, I am with you, I am for you, and I'm not going anywhere. John's talking about meeting very physical needs as an example of how to love, but this applies to all needs, spiritual needs, ongoing general suffering in life. So will you share what's going on with someone? Will you ask your family, this church family, to help you carry your burden, whatever it happens to be? It is humbling to ask for help, but that's God's grace to you, to grow you, to shape you, to change you from one degree of glory to another. Don't allow pride to get in the way of grace, the grace that God wants to give you in and through his people. Listen, if we are going to love like this, it means that we need to stop and slow down and look around us. So often we can get so wrapped up in our world, so wrapped up in our own lives that we neglect to truly be involved in the lives of those around us. But genuine love, this Christ-like love for one another will take note and notice of when someone we care about is in need of help or mercy or encouragement. 
This kind of love seeks to listen and to learn and to understand. Say, I don't know exactly why you think the way you think, but I want to understand why. I want to come alongside of you. I want to be together with you. Brothers and sisters, the love of Christ is a love that expends itself in the interest of others. And to be selfless instead of selfish requires the heart and mind of Christ. And that is yours already if you are indeed in him, if he is your Lord and he is your savior. So when we strive to love one another like this, it not only helps us maintain the unity that Jesus has purchased for us, it will also be a witness to the watching world. A world that right now is bent on biting and devouring one another. Brothers and sisters, we can walk in a different direction. We can walk in a different direction. We can be a community that is only explainable because of the gospel. Loving one another in the way Jesus loves us may be easier said than done. It is hard and we are not gonna get it right all the time, but it really matters. And it's really possible by the grace that God provides, by the power that God provides, it's really possible when Christ is our King. So let's follow him and by grace, love one another like he loves us. Amen.